Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 114. I'm John Bean. In today's episode, we're coming to you live from Rise Up InsureTech. Very well done, very well done. Today we're going to be talking about the topic that's been on almost everyone's lips lately. Or maybe not on everyone's lips, certainly back of mind, what the hell is it? And that is Web3 and Web3 in the metaverse. It seems like it's here to stay. And with this new era, we want to take a look at what the insurance might become. As always, I'm not alone and joined by a panel of amazing guests. So first up, I'm joined by my co-host, Nigel Walsh, Managing Director of Insurance, Google Cloud. How are you, Nigel? I'm very well. It's nice to be back on stage. Nice to have you. <laughs> Next up, we are joined by Sophie Winwood, early stage VC investor at Anthemus. How are you doing today, Sophie? Can we hear a little bit about yourself and Anthemus? Yeah, um, I'm doing good. I was just saying it's InsureTech week. It's basically like my Christmas. So, you know, <laughs> super exciting. I work for Anthemus. We are an early stage venture capital fund focusing on everything to do with the future of financial services. I specifically focus more on, on insurance and risk management. I am a total InsureTech nerd. Um, so I'm like, very excited to talk about this topic. <laughs> I think we all are here. Next over, we are joined by Simon Taylor, CPO at 11FS. How are you doing, Simon? Can you give us a little bit of information about yourself as well? Yeah, the voice might be familiar, but the face might not. Um, podcaster, fintech nerd, um, and excited to be a crypto node host of Blockchain Insider. If you like all things crypto, do check that out. But I'm super excited that you guys have invited me to InsureTech Insider. This is really, really good. I'm Welcome to the fun party. I know. <laughs> I like, look. There are nerds and then there's insurance nerds. You guys are a different league of awesome. I feel like I've graduated. This is beautiful. So that's thank the reinsurance show, actually. We got insurance jokes for days. <laughs> I'm here for it. Well, we, we, we're going really deep if we're talking insurance and Web3. So where do we start? I guess if hands up, I'm going to ask the audience, who is confident in their understanding of Web3? We do have some hands, just, hands. just for those who are, uh, are on the podcast, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 people in the room, we've got three hands. So better than I expected, I feel like, Simon, we should start with you. Can you give us a Web3 101 and what the difference is between Web3 and the metaverse? I can try, but I'm just going to point out I didn't put my hand up. Just, 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 <laughs> I'm just going to point that Tough. out. So perhaps the best description at the highest level I've heard of certainly Web3 comes from Chris Dixon of Andreessen Horowitz, and he talks about Web1, Web2, and then Web3 to put it into context. So Web1, if you remember the early days of the internet, you have protocols like email and HTTP, and what you get with that is the ability to read things. Ah, I can read this website. That's very, very nice. So it's a, it's a phase that's really about reading things. Web 2 comes along and you get social media, you get Netflix, you get this new wave of content creation. So it moves from just reading things from newspapers and wherever else to reading and writing. So we move from read to read write. Well, that's kind of a nice mental model. It's not particularly accurate, but it's, it's kind of gives you the big generalizations of the social media movement and, and everything that kind of came with that. So Web 3 becomes read and write and own. Now, what does that mean? Let's, let's unpack it for just a second. Ownership in the digital sense doesn't necessarily exist. What we've got in the digital world is digitized ownership. So the mortgage to your house, you might be able to view as a PDF, but ultimately it's a document. 
Any contract is ultimately a document that's been digitized. So this new concept of digital ownership is about separating ownership from the platform. If a TikTok creator creates a video, they don't own that content, the platform does. If somebody puts something, uh, if a musician creates uh, a song with a record label, typically they no longer own their, the art they created. They have given away ownership of that art in return for a cash flow. So this idea that we're changing the nature of what ownership means in the digital world is core to Web3. So that's Web3. And then very, very briefly on Metaverse, I'd think about it simply as the Metaverse is digital devices and or ways of interacting with the internet. I thought that it was Mark Zuckerberg's definition, and it's one of the few things I agree with him on, um, which is it doesn't necessarily have to mean heavy VR headsets. It could be video calls. It could be everything else. So not, not every bank in the world has to go by land and sandbox the game. <coughs> Shift PC. <laughs> and we don't need any more um, branches in the metaverse. Uh, but what we could do with is ways to deal with potentially a new economy and new types of ownership. And that's exciting. So that was hopefully a reasonable 101. I don't know if the two people at the back, how did I do? Okay, I got a solid thumbs up. Two thumbs up. I'll take that. That's 100% success rate. That's not bad. <laughs> I will take that and now wait, I will shush. Why don't we need a branch in the metaverse? Why do we need a branch in the metaverse? Because that's the way you've always interacted. It's the way we've always engaged and we're used to it. And when my mum dons her VR headset, she probably won't, she can actually go to the bank branch that you mentioned a minute ago and withdraw her digital assets. It's interesting because we've seen a couple of banks open branches. So HSBC, JP Morgan have opened up HQs in the metaverse. Do, do we think insurers should follow suit? I'm just going to point out everybody did it in Second Life and how did that go? Just going to leave it there. Like, so are you familiar with skeuomorphism? It's a great word. It sounds like some sort of superhero magic spell, but actually it's the idea that when we have a new technology, we use something to represent the old technology. So the early days of the iPhone, like the news app had like a newspaper on it. So, ah, that's what that's for, right. But what you see over time is that design changes as people become confident with this new technology and new way of doing things. And typically it's the things that are born new in a new paradigm that do better than the things that copy the old. So for example, the news, uh, newspaper companies, yeah, they could distribute themselves as a mobile app, but they've changed the distribution. But YouTube and Twitter and other ways of consuming media that are natively mobile, natively digital, have done an awful lot better. So in the new world, we really, you have a choice to think about, is your business model, the, is it going to be distributed the same way that you did? Are you going to be replicating with skeuomorphism the thing you always did? Or are you actually facing into new growth companies, new growth industries, and how do you serve them? So anyways, I'll shush now. I've talked a lot. No, I, I can't even pronounce the word skeuomorphism. You well, just did. Well, there you go. I was going to pass it over to, uh, to Nigel. Obviously, where do you think this lies in context of insurance, the whole Web3? Do you think there's an opportunity there for insurers? Yes. In short, in short order, without question, I think you have to look at it in two ways. You've, way one is the organizations that are providing services into the metaverse or for Web3 will need to be insured in the same way that any traditional organization has done, whether it's liability or the offices that people go to to go create it or wherever they may sit in the 
the virtual world. So you've got the traditional insurance cover for the organizations that are setting up to go do this first and foremost. But then what they create in these new environments or these new worlds may also need cover. If you go back to the amount that was stolen or defrauded last year in the crypto world, it's in the billions. So you go straight to cyber as the most recognizable cover to say, actually, if I'm going to buy a piece of land in the metaverse, I'm giving away physical material cash that's represented in my world. What happens if that gets stolen or code gets taken away or there's a hack or an event that means that money is now gone? Should I and can I protect that going forward? And I think the answer is should you is down to your risk appetite. In many cases, they'll say yes. Can you is down to the insurer's ability to understand what the risk is, what's the likelihood of it occurring, and then be able to price it, which is actually the biggest issue we have, I think, right now is because not enough people will actually understand it, which means you've got the modern generation walking around Lloyd's of London with a slip to go, help us understand this, which is the home for emerging risks to say, actually, this is what we think it is, and this is what the loss run is for the last 30 years. Uh-oh, hasn't existed for 30 years. There's no loss run. We've got no history of what's going to happen here. And building on that, Sophie, what, if we don't have the history and we don't have, and, and this is all new to these insurers, do you feel like the risk profiles are different or how do you think insurers can move into this space with confidence? Yeah, so I think, you know, you can draw some analogies to cyber insurance in a way, which is actually you do have this very profound problem that cab will be have a huge impact on this industry and will also be inhibiting it moving forward, right? Because insurance is, is usually a sign, like a positive sign to regulators that they can support the industry and it, and it also gives people the kind of trust that they have the safety net that, that sits underneath. And so I guess it kind of depends on, you know, where what, what assets you're insuring. But, you know, when you look at sort of old historical ways of, of underwriting and looking at previous rip, like history risks, yes, we are going to have a problem. This is a new industry. It's evolving very, very quickly. The risk is changing and the types of risk and, and the quantum is very, very big. However, if you start to, you know, start to really utilize the data, I mean, one of the great things about kind of Web3 is that there is a lot of data that is accessible. Yes, at the moment, it's very difficult to interpret and extract. But once we get a handle on how to look at this data and understand it, I think we can start creating interesting insurance products around that. And we are seeing a few people doing some. Could you give some examples of that just to bring it to life? I find examples really make a difference. I mean, I think of CoinCover and Nexus Mutual. You might know some, some other ones. Yeah, so Nexus Mutual, I think, is a good example. We're invested in a company called Shore Crypto out of the US. Mm -hmm. And that's really um, kind of plugging into to underlying um, blockchains and protocols um, and actually um, kind of taking in that data and basing it on um, like you know, we're, we're live monitoring the data. We can live see sort of either vulnerabilities or places where there could be hacks or loss and then we will alert it. So it's, uh, it, it's one side is like taking the data, but other side is also the preventative side of it as well. It's kind of interesting. You were saying you don't have 30 years of data, but you've got a lot of data. And actually, if I can work with a lot of data, then I can start to see patterns a lot quicker just because it's a large data set. So I, I was curious on that point. So is, is this something completely net new or is it just doing something in a different way or something better? So, both. That's a consulting answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, well, what can I say? Um, consulting is available from 11FS at a very reasonable price. There you go. Um, it's both, right? So uh, Stripe 
most people in this room are familiar with Stripe just announced that they're launching uh, all of the products they already had for crypto businesses. So there's nothing really net new they're doing other than behind the scenes, the regulatory risks are different, the licenses are different, blah, blah, blah. So they will have had to do a lot of homework to get those products live, but it's not net new. And yet I don't think we should think it's that's a, We don't think, but I think that's an incredible thing. Um, Visa supports um, stablecoin settlement. Like that's incredible. It's very, very important. And I think people tend to go, oh, that, but it's not net new. It's an evolution. I'm like, it's still amazing. And actually as industries, especially incumbent industries, that's where your growth is going to come from. I get excited about the not net new stuff for incumbent industry. Just on that though, couldn't you liken that? And I've always done the same, whether it's Apple Pay or Google Pay or Samsung Pay, that's no different than taking my physical card and making a NFC device on my handset. It's, it's a distribution channel. It's a change of distribution, but it's also a change of the underlying risks. And potentially you get some really interesting programmable assets, programmable money use cases. So programmable asset, um, it's very hard for my Banksy to know it's been stolen. I don't have a Banksy, by the way. Or You have two. Yeah, exactly. But assets don't know where they exist or where they should be. Um, but with ownership and with software, we could potentially be in a place where it knows what wallet it's supposed to belong to. And then it's been stolen. Ah, I've been stolen. Ah, imagine like a screaming bit of art. Like, that's a crazy idea. So the, the things that these organizations do start out evolutionary. But the net new stuff that could come, I think we'll see that in the next two to three years. And that's where I get very, very excited. So I think both is true. I mean, uh, that sort of programmable asset and change of ownership is a really interesting thread to pull on. But, and, and I think that's the interesting point for insurance because uh, ownership is un fundamentally what we're insuring as, as risk. And it comes back to what is somebody stealing? Are they stealing, and we have this conversation, are they stealing the key or are they stealing actually reprogramming the deeds on the blockchain? Or are they both one and the same? Your comment about data is still fascinating me because I think and we've got some legal friends in the room as well. So they'll call me out, correct or, or correct me here. I think the data that we have that you both talked about is really interesting, but insurance is written on contract. And it's the interpretation of contract that's really, really interesting. And the BI case, the business interruption case over the last couple of years for COVID has proven this time and time again as to what you're covered for and what you're not covered for. Along comes, I'm going to call it clean data, where it's absolutely crystal clear about ownership, where it exists and whatever else. And you start to get into a different level of known risk. Smart contracts and travel insurance are a great example. I've used this example all the time because it's the easiest way to explain it. We've all been on planes. We've all been delayed at times. We've probably all had travel insurance, yet we've never probably claimed because it's too much of a, it wasn't that much of a delay. I wasn't that much bothered. I'm not going to go through the whole process to get 30 quid back. I'm not going to do it. Along comes data and data tells you that you are entitled to, and more importantly, automatically paid to. So just because you can, doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you always should. So I think the data is a double-edged sword in this instance to say, if it's there and the data is going to prove it, your loss ratios are just going to go through the roof because it's automatically proven. Now it works brilliantly in commodity, fast flow products like travel, or where there's no dispute, whiplash, bodily injury, or non-denial of access to buildings. There's loads of stuff in the contracts that we would normally argue over in a court of law. But I think the data on this for me is a double-edged sword. Is this effectively leaning towards parametric insurance, therefore? That, that is exactly, it's either parametric or it's warranty. It's not even insurance anymore. 
You can always go, well, it's not true. If, if that happens, then here's all the clear conditions. This and if this, then that rule. Whereas ordinarily, that would be, in fact, my wife's doing it right now for travel insurance. If you're looking to try and go away, she's scouring through 7,400 pages of, of contracts to work out if we're covered for COVID because it's hidden in there somewhere. I, I do like the idea that if this, then that for insurance, if this, then that for money, if this, then that for assets, it's probably not the worst thing if we all agree to those conditions ahead of time. The really interesting thing about Web3 and crypto is how we all agree. So we all sign a transaction with our public and private key pair. And so that's a bit like signing a transaction with, with a key, with, a, with, with your pen. But instead of it, think of the key as being this really, really important new paradigm in this Web3 world. We're in PKI, we're dealing with keys. Suddenly this key becomes really, really important. And there's a bunch of companies that now help you insure your keys and whatever else. But this key paradigm, this ownership paradigm is really important to unpack a little bit. Because a key can represent two things in the digital asset space, or if you think about ownership. When you think about your house, there's the deed to your house, which represents the legal ownership of your house. And then there's the physical door key to your house, which actually gives you access. Now, the keys in the Web3 world inside of a wallet give you both ownership and access with the same key. Now, if somebody can steal things you own by taking that key, they're taking the ownership and the access. In the physical world, if somebody takes the key to your house, hopefully you call the police, prove you're the owner, and they kick them out. No such thing in, in the crypto world. If somebody has that thing, you no longer do, unless you give the key to somebody else, a key custodian, and this is where insurance starts to get interesting because you do have lots of custodial solutions, custodial wallets, and companies that start to look after those keys. So that's where things get interesting for me is, is if things are digital, then digital things can be stolen and there's a whole bunch of risks that sit around them, especially if somebody else is looking after them because they end up in vaults and whatever. It reminds me of the early days of domain names where domain names just got nicked all the time because you missed your deadline to get the day and all of a sudden, yeah. you know, John owns facebook.com for five minutes and gives it back because it's morally the right thing to do. I got the same issue with .sol domains at the moment. It's an issue in Solana. Anyway, a whole other <laughs> thing. But I think that's a really good point around how important insurance is to move this Web3 forward because mm. At the moment, there's, you know, there's a couple of barriers and one of them is kind of just trust in this new infrastructure and way of working. And if, if you can then implement insurance strategies that make people feel safer, then I think we will start to see, you know, more, more interaction and more people coming in that aren't just, you know, the Web3 nerds. Web3 nerds are okay. Oh, they are I'm okay. Cool. Hey, I didn't say they weren't okay. Uh, but it, does anybody know anybody that's like got really deep into NFTs or has anybody here gone down that rabbit hole? Zero hands up. Does anybody know anybody that's got into NFTs? Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, I think probably the best way to look at this further is what are some use cases within this world? So NFTs is one. Mm -hmm. And by the looks of things, we've got a couple of NFT boys. Are, are there any other use cases? Just on NFTs, I'll show you how scary this is with a quick example. My 12-year-old son walks down the stairs the other day and said, Dad, how do I go create an NFT for... I'm like, I have absolutely no idea. Within about 20 minutes, he's on YouTube trying to do all the research he wants to go work out what he has to go do, create his own NFT. That's 12. So that's kind of scaring the life out of me that the next generation are already miles ahead of our understanding and off they're doing by self-learning on, on YouTube and elsewhere. And I, I mean, I know somebody who, who started investing in NFTs. They saw it as almost an investment tool, a bit like crypto. And I don't know if people see it as 
these are genuine products or people see it as an investment vehicle. And I'm, I'm not sure people have fully decided yet. So NFTs is one use case. What are the other use cases we see that insurers are going to have to be aware of? Um, I'll start with you, Sophie. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting. I think the jury's still out on NFTs. A lot of it is just speculative trading. And I think that's, as a VC, we really look for something that has utility so that you're not just, you know, the price is just going up and down based on whether someone likes it or it's in vogue. It's actually creating value. And then that's where we get really excited. One example that we, we've invested in, and I know like me and Nigel both, we used to work for Deloitte. So um, this is maybe a bit of a sore topic, but it is trying to disrupt the professional services industry. And the thesis behind that is, again, kind of coming back to the ownership is if you're a consultant, you're producing a lot of great work, but you have no ownership on that work. Actually, the company is benefiting from that and you are only seeing a small percentage. Whereas in a, in a decentralized world, you could create an asset around what your work would be and then people could pay for that with tokens and then you would be benefiting from that. And then you could also do peer-to-peer -peer trading. So someone could come to you and say, I know you're an expert in this and you could, you know, to have access there, you might have to buy a token to, to, to participate in this uh, world or DAO, for example, where you can kind of communicate with consultants. So things like that where you're, it's, it's I guess, the going back to the like, you're taking a centralized organization where a lot of the value goes to certain players and decentralizing that and giving the power back to the people who are producing the value. Isn't that just the gig economy? It's the gig economy, but without, again, a centralized with platform. Ownership. With ownership. Yeah. So the gig economy says, I will pay you to do a bit of work and I, the platform, will extract as much value from you as possible. This is the inverse that says the work you create, you have royalties in perpetuity. So the, again, remember assets with functionality. So I've created this asset. Let's say it's a wonderful triangle because consultants love some sort of triangle. Two by twos, please. Maybe two by two. Okay, we've created our magical two by two. This has blown the minds of the first people to see it. This is the best quadrant the world has ever seen. Is it quadrants with the light? I can't remember whichever one. That's gone. <laughs> I don't know. But you've made your magic slide. But every time somebody wants to use that, baked into the software is the fact that they can only get access to it by paying for access with these magic beans, with these tokens. And as soon as they get access to it, you receive your royalties. It's the only way to access that content. And, and that sort of baking in functionality also means, let's say there was some liability issue. Oh, I followed your advice that was on your two by two, and now something went wrong and I wish to sue you. Well, baked into the contract is da 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 da, these sets of rules. So you increasingly get into this world where you're having to think through the possible consequences of people consuming what you've created. And instead of burying it in T's and C's, how can you start to automate more of it? Will it go that way? I don't know. Well, and, and, and that automation is probably really, really important in terms of the insurance value chain. For years, we tried to automate things, whether it's automate data collection, automate claims, auto, you know, automation is rife everywhere. Do we think, I'll point this one to you, Nigel, do we think this concept and Web3 and blockchain and everything else will allow us to actually expedite that automation process for things like claims or parts of the value chain? Possibly, but it depends which world you're operating in. So back to Simon's point, whilst you might own the asset to engage in that company, if Deloitte or 11FS wanted to hire a contractor, you would do so under NDA with cyber protection from the individual that they're not going to put in, inject bad code or they're not going to be malicious in any way or shape or form. So you're still, I don't want to say lumber, but you're still contracted to do the things that make sure you're a good human, whether you are in the 
physical world that we live in or in the digital world that we live in. So again, it's back to your point about evolution or revolution. It's not, we are digitizing some of the current world that we know whilst we understand what the new world looks like. Or is this just second life or third life all over again? I, I'm, I don't have an answer for you. See, I can't work out if it's going to be the next big thing or not. Yeah, and I think there's still a disconnect between the fact that a something that's decentralized still needs to interact with the real world. Like there are still legal frameworks that they need to like be a part of. There is still kind of, you know, stuff that the Web2 um, interactions that need to happen. And so it's, it's kind of difficult sometimes to see how that it can completely break away. I think one of my favorite examples, there's a couple actually that come to mind. Uh, the first one's brain trust, which is very similar to what you were just describing. So brain trust has been used by NASA as a customer, been used by Samsung. So the big name companies, and it, it's not dissimilar to a, a gig economy market where they have freelancers. The difference being in order to contract those freelancers, the customer must buy this token and then when they buy the token, they pay for the freelancers or, or network of freelancers with that token. And then what happens is that token gets distributed a little bit, goes back to the platform to manage the fee, but a lot of it actually then goes to the, the people who are doing the freelance work. And then what they get with those tokens is the ability to vote on the future of how the platform operates. So you have less of a management team structure and more of a like forced decentralization, almost baked into the articles of association of how the, the, the organizations so, so is that not micropayments for Kaggle where you can dump all your problems into a combined uh, source and then have someone, have groups of people compete to then go solve those problems, solve diamond mining in South Africa or wherever else it might be, but just get paid for it properly because you have ownership of the things that you put into the system. Potentially, yes, although there's a curation piece of it as well, which is not just everybody competes. The, there are people in the platform whose job is to help you find the right person to do the job for you. So you end up in, in this interesting space. The other one I'd point out, again, just I find use cases so helpful now. They're starting to emerge in decentralization. There's a network called Helium Network. And if you've heard of uh, Lime, the scooter company, um, Lime is the biggest- Sorry, hang on, hang on. You're not allowed to mention scooters on InsureTech Insider. <laughs> they are illegal in the country. We shouldn't be using them. Check with my legal friends. Uh, they are illegal. In other countries where they're perfectly legal, <laughs> one of the issues that Lime had was that you need lots of ultra low powered telephony and large area Wi-Fi. And the telcos were extremely expensive because they hadn't rolled out their top-down infrastructure. So what Helium Network did is turn it on its head and say, anybody who wants to make a few, few, few extra pence can do so by sticking this random bit of equipment on their wall. And this random bit of equipment on their wall builds a wide area network. And this wide area network doesn't have traditional payments rails. It, does, it isn't a traditional company. They use these magic beans, AKA tokens, and they use that as a payment mechanism, an incentive mechanism throughout the whole thing. So you literally buy this little mining box, you stick it on your window, and it sits there making you money that you can take to the bank for essentially participating in the network. That's a new business model. And that new business model will have risks. So what are the risks to that business model? So for me, Web3 is about ownership and the new business models that start to get enabled. Interesting on that one, there's stories in the States where you see people then going, how do I charge these damn things that I have to go scoot around on? And there's a charging network of people that can go and earn money by picking them up, charging them overnight and dropping them back to other spots. Yeah. So you keep creating these new businesses that we didn't have 
three, four, five, five years ago. And, and, and the, I guess the interesting thing is, what would be the new business model for insurance in this world? Well, everything that you've described comes with risk. And insurance's purpose is to mitigate risks to keep doing things. Whether it's putting a man on the moon, although NASA is self-insuring, or space travel, marine exploration, everything that out there that carries risk, our role in society is to remove that, or at least put a, a number around it to say, in these instances, this is what we do. I can't imagine any of these large banks going into Metaverse or Web3 now aren't going in there with enough protection to make sure that they don't let something happen in the Metaverse that adversely impacts them in their traditional business, whether it's reputational damage, whether it's cyber or anything else that goes on. And I, I think just adding to that, my hope is that, so one of the big issues with insurance at the moment is this trust issue. A lot of people don't feel like they can trust the industry. Whereas it, when you move to this kind of, you know, smart contract um, world where you do have everything that is kind of available and you know what the triggers are and the data is there, the hope is that you, you kind of create a better trust. So everyone is on the same page, you know, kind of what it is. And that works again with like some of those parametric examples, but whether we can then translate that into these more difficult risks, I don't know yet. I think it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Where there are new assets and those new assets have new functionality, those new assets with new functionality have new risks. And so you'll be able to solve for some of those with software, I imagine, but many of them you won't. But this has been coming for years. Look at self-driving cars or automation, or even more advanced driving capability in the cars today. There's been news for years about cars that have been taken over through infotainment and taken off the road or whatever else. That's malicious code. What if a contractor worked on that piece of code or that one or two lines that was embedded into the vehicle that ultimately ended up in, in, the, in the car? Whose issue is that? And before over-the-air updates on the modern vehicle, that was a right pain in the whatever is to get sorted out. But now they've been updated on a much more regular basis. I think protecting against that in the physical world is as difficult as it will be in the digital world going forward. The dirty secret of crypto as well is how many hacks there are, like, and, and how, so the default model of buying NFTs, for instance, is self-custody. In other words, it's like having the physical art, but you carry it around with you everywhere you go and you stuff this thing in your wallet. And it's if you have a very expensive piece of art, maybe worth a couple of hundred thousand dollars, in this wallet that you're walking around with, it would be like trying to carry a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash. Like there's a big theft risk. There's a big hacking risk. There's all of those sorts of things. And that's the default. That's how most people operate. So you've got all of this that's already happening. And then you've got these centralized platforms like OpenSea, a marketplace for being able to buy, sell and trade uh, these NFTs that whilst they don't hold the asset, they can block somebody from buying and selling it. So what that means now is there are lots of people who've gone and bought an NFT. It's gone up in value to hundreds of thousands of dollars, but they can't get it back because somebody stole it from them. And now it's been paused as well on OpenSea so nobody can buy, sell it, trade it. So the, the laws we have, the rules we have are, are really not necessarily cut out for this new type of ownership. Well, didn't that happen with Board Ape? Didn't the, one of the NFTs dropped in value, got sold for a fraction of what it was bought for originally, and you're you out of pocket. Yeah. You had a real physical money. The problem with being your own bank, being your own custodian, is you have your own bank robbers and you can make your own mistakes. The great thing about somebody else custodying it is you have the oops. 
somebody to help you out of the oops situation and a framework around it. And that is something that I believe society, business, consumers will ultimately want. Uh, and so the role of that and the technology of that might change, but the business models are going to be hard to predict. So the bigger market or the more stable market might be the insurers entering that space rather than the individual space or potentially both. Yeah, who knows? And try the, it all. The other comment to make, and we didn't get a chance to ask the regulation panel, is what's the impact of regulation on all this? I think the FCA recently pulled all crypto ATMs in there as well. They said you just can't do it. So I think there's an education thing for the consumer, it might be led by 12-year-old boys and girls, who knows? But then an education piece for the, and the comment was made on the, on the previous panel about the regulators currently dealing with a whole host of other scandals, or whatever else, they're on the back foot, not the front foot. This really needs us to be on the front foot. Obviously, there's benefits with regards to privacy, there's benefits with regards to ownership. What do we see as the biggest challenges with regards to Web3, particularly for insurers? It's probably, you know, understanding it. <laughs> I mean, people who live and breathe it still don't completely understand it because it is moving so quickly and it is, is so new. And, and it, you know, I think people are scared of things that are new and, and uh, insurance like isn't the most fast moving, would we say, industry in the world? I think so. I mean, Nigel, do you, are there any insurers in this space already or you know, is insurance going to be behind the times and eventually it will catch up? There's plenty of folks that are looking at it right now, whether publicly or privately, looking at what they can do to create new products. Because new product launches for insurers are typically slow, to Sophie's point, but they are getting quicker and quicker. Once we understand it, we can then get the capacity behind it and then go release it to market. So there are a number of things out there. Um, I think Uno Rio is reading about earlier that are creating capabilities or products to support some of these, but they're not, you can't go onto a comparison site today and go, I want one of these things to protect my NFT. They just don't exist, it's specialist. But specialist, specialist insurance has always been out there and will always be out there because that's why you walk around Lloyd's of London to go and get the most unique things insured and after it becomes less unique, it goes to the mass market. But we're the ones in my mind that start to enable this to get out there in the first place. The institutional world and the crypto whales, as they call them, people with hundreds of millions, if not tens of millions of crypto assets in their wallets, they can find people who are going to insure them because it's worth it on the one-off deal to, to do that for the insurer and for everybody in the value chain. Same with the private wealth and, and, and all of that sort of space. What I do think, my prediction is in six to 12 months, we'll see insurance as a thing that you just click a button as a consumer and you can help insure everything that's sitting in your wallet. I'm seeing several companies starting to, to look at developing that. And if you've not used, um, hands up if you've used like a MetaMask or a Web3 wallet, Okay, so like, again, four or five hands. Your homework is to go install MetaMask into your favorite browser, should you wish to. I don't believe there will be any issues, but it is at your own risk, he says on an insurance. Can you insure that? Yeah, just yeah. Ask me. I was gonna say, but if you really wanna understand this space, there's nothing like installing a wallet into your own browser and then buying the lowest priced NFT you can, possibly on Polygon. Do not spend any money you can't afford to lose and don't do it if you can't afford to lose that money at all. But it just makes so much more sense because there's this paradigm of instead of sort of entering my card details, I connect my wallet to an app. And once you kind of get used to that, you sort of get used to, oh, okay, there's this new way of like, I take my wallet, this, the cash in my wallet, the assets in my wallet to this other service rather than this other service holds all of my money and I have a username and password to it. So I think on the education point, and I think on some of the regulation points, 
those things are going to be so crucial. And unless people in this audience start to engage with that and the audience listening, then it, it just doesn't make sense. It, uh, the, my favorite quote lately is um, Morpheus talking to Neo in The Matrix, the original movie, which is people can't be told what The Matrix is. They have to see it for themselves. And I think we have to step into this space with, with trying it out. But you see it with the adoption of Bitcoin and everything else. For, if you look at the number of people in the UK or US that currently hold cryptocurrency, that's going up and up and up on a frequent frequent basis and you ask them about where they would invest whether it's cryptocurrency and again back to the next generation hey my son would you invest in cryptocurrency or a traditional pension guess where they're going to invest i would argue that the volatility and this is simon taylor's opinion the volatility of crypto is a feature not a bug because it gets people interested and then it forces you to learn about the nature of risk and the nature of financial services. So it's, it's, um, it's a brutal way to do it because you can lose all of your money. Doesn't substitute proper financial advice over long-term planning, <laughs> just for the record. No, I would agree with that. Uh, of course it doesn't. And you should do your own research and you should never spend money you can't afford to lose. Of course not. However, there, when was it cool to talk about money before? When was it cool to understand risk before? That has been a cultural shift. And I think that cultural shift is really, really interesting in that like, it, it felt really weird to me when fintech first got cool. It feels like insurtech's having its like moment. We've always been cool. You didn't see us. <laughs> no, see, like, I feel like fintech's that, that person that used to be cool four or five years ago and has kind of lost it and, you know, it's, it had some court issues or whatever. And now it's kind of down when insurtech's on the way up. But that that wasn't a thing for previous generations, was it? I don't know. I don't think, and I, I wonder if insurance does catch up and start to play this game, do we think, you know, that the layman, the average investor, the average person, because of the nature, you can protect your assets, you have the risk. Do we expect to see a spike or, as you say, people will just try it? Do you think insurance will, I mean, Sophie, do you think insurance will actually help people move into this space and give them a lot more confidence? Because for me, it's, it's the unknown. It, it, you need that confidence. Insurance, maybe that's the tool. Well, insurance and education, maybe that's the tool or the tools to get people interested? I think it's it's probably one of the tools. I think insurance is probably more important for institutions to get involved in the ecosystem. I think as a consumer, insurance is important. I think usability and customer experience is really important. I, you know, I have used MetaMask. It's it's actually okay, but a lot of the a lot of the kind of user journeys for getting involved in 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 Web three and these crypto is horrendous. Um, and so I I think there is that that is starting, and we are seeing a lot a lot kind of better. But it's you know you don't want to have to well like really mine through like mud to get to this. You kind of just be like, oh, I want to, you know, buy this and this is how I do it. Um, and then I think it's around sort of, yeah, there, there definitely is a question around risk and, 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 and kind of being secured and, and whether that's insurance or whether that's just it becoming more mainstream and available is, is, is a question. Just to those two points though. So good examples for me are the friction-free nature of trading these days, whether it's free trade or Robinhood, is accessible via an app to every consumer. They can log on and go through a journey that's really easy to get. And I've even got my son now going, I want to invest in those stocks. It goes up and I can sell it really quickly at, at no price. If you can't do that for the new world, then until that happens, you won't get mass adoption on the consumer side. On the corporate side, if you're an organization that's put hundreds of millions of dollars of your balance sheet onto crypto assets, 
then there's got to be something that says, what am I putting at risk here? And how are we going to insure against those? Yeah. And that's probably the bigger issue first and foremost before you get to consumerism. Oh yeah, and that's that's already a big, big market in insurance. Um, the the Nexus Mutuals, the coin covers of the world do a lot of business. So the crypto custodians like Fireblocks and Anchorage and all of those companies have crypto insurers that sort of sit behind them. So there's a whole industry emerging there that I don't ne think necessarily gets considered insure tech, but it is. It's understanding and insuring new risk, right? Yeah. Well, it's understanding it. And then these organizations are going to have to hire individuals for it. Yeah. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges, I think, for insurers is who do you go out? Well, one, as we said, historically, it's historical risk information. So how do you get the latest data or the people who can actually insure this? And then how do you get the people who can even understand this? Do you start bringing them in or do you have to go externally for that talent? I mean, you could call 11FS. <laughs> that, that wasn't a plug, by the way. We're drawing towards the end. I just wanted to get your views on, and maybe this is a little bit early because we've not even landed Web3. What about Web4? What do you think the future will offer? You know, when you said Web3 and Metaverse, I thought Spiderverse, Web, I was thinking amazing. There was, there was a, I think we just need more Miles Morales. That's what we need. Just, just more Spider-Man type things. No, I don't know. <laughs> did, did I just take a conversational left turn and take everybody with me? I think I did. I, yeah. well, well done. I, I think you'll find that actually Sophie's plugged into Web4 physically. Right? I literally actually, am. Like, seriously, I am part of the Something involving Neuralink. Yeah. And any, any advancements on I don't know? <laughs> oh, but Nigel? <laughs> it, for me, these are all evolutionary. So I still think these are all step by step. The, the pace our industries move, the pace we get to mass adoption, it's still evolutionary. It's the old phrase, you know, we underestimate what we can do in 10 years, but overestimate we, what we do in one. We're somewhere in between those two things. There was another quote that I always go back to, which I really like was, we've never moved this fast, but we'll never move this slow ever again. And it was Justin Trudeau in, in World Economic Forum. I, and I love that because we're not slowing down. I used the example yesterday at, at an event where I said, you know, during the pandemic, we all went to, went to more online shopping. Now ask anyone, regardless of age or where they're from or what they've done, how many people are going to go back? The answer is none. No one's going back to the way it used to be. So once it starts, you're not going to stop this train. Genies don't go quietly back into bottles. Or toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> Genies don't go into toothpaste? <laughs> that's crest magic. <laughs> wow. And maybe that's where we'll leave it. I mean, <laughs> I, think, I think what we said, try it. There is a crypto saying um, LFG. But I think for some of this stuff, it is try it. I think let's move it forwards. People have got to learn about it. I do think there's an educational piece. I do think there's a risk piece. Thank you very, very much for being participants in our, our live InsureTech Insider episode. That wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all for joining me. So I guess, where can we find out more about you and your companies, Nigel Walsh? Mr. InsureTech at google.com. I kid you not. No. <laughs> well done. Are you clapping that? Yeah, it's, <laughs> that, come on. That's the most Nigel Walsh yeah, thing I've true. ever heard. That is very true. Does it, does it work for you, Nigel? It actually works. It actually is that, works. That's your Peloton handle it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, 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 what I have noticed is it, it's even got an emoji built into it. So, you are a walking, talking dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> so the worst thing is whenever I tag you and I want to put a little emoji to say, you know. That's me. That's great, Nigel. I end up with two of them because you've already got it built in.
Sophie, where can we learn more about yourself? This is InsureTech. <laughs> InsureTech Queen. Um, no, I'm at Sophie Winwood on Twitter and you can find out more about Anthemus at Anthemus.com. And Simon and yourself? Email me, Simon at 11fs.com. Find me on Twitter at SYTaylor. Or check out Blockchain Insider on your favorite podcast client. Um, the last show we did was all about music NFTs. Really good use case. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm John Bean. You can find me on LinkedIn or you can find me equally at 11fs. Thanks very much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make us better and it helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider or find us at Twitter at InsTech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And I'll let everybody get to the drinks right now.